So this is uh, the first, the first gathering of the new year, and uh, I'm just amazed that anyone came out in this weather. So thank you all for being here. And so for once, I'm actually delighted that this room is so warm. You, have, <laughs> you know, people are usually kind of keeling over here, you know, from the heat. You know, it's like bonk. You know, you hear heads hitting the floor, and you know that's from the heat of the room. But um, I think we're nice and cozy today, <laughs> insulated against that uh, minus 15 degrees out there. So, welcome, welcome. <clears throat> um, we decided that uh, we would do uh, the arti ceremony at the beginning. So you're welcome to start. This is um, a traditional ceremony of <clears throat> offering. The different elements of creation offered back to the source of those elements. So there's sound, fragrance of the earth, flowers, fruits, etc. So uh, you're welcome to stay seated if you wish, or if you wanted, you're welcome to approach the altar and watch our uh, dear friend Michael Cohen doing the arti ceremony. And while he's doing that, we'll do a chant. We'll start off with a nice chant. So the chanting in the bhakti, or devotional tradition, uh, begins with an offering of appreciation to the guru, to the teacher, and then into the Krishna mantra, since we are reading Krishna's text, Bhagavad Gita. And if you felt like chanting along, you're welcome to do so. It's a call and response mode. So I chant one time, and then you're invited to respond with me. So first a prayer to the spiritual master and then the Krishna mantra. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Iti Namine Namaste Saraswati Devi Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Paschachade Satarine Hare Krishna Hare Rama, Hare Rama. 
Chanting is, um, we're going to talk about mantras in a moment in this little PowerPoint, but uh, it reminds me of the first day I visited a Krishna temple <laughs> way back in 06. 19, it was actually 1969 in London. And uh, I don't know whether any of you are old enough to remember the musical Hair. But uh, that was my first encounter with the Krishna mantra. My mom took me to see that off-Broadway. This was probably 66, 67, somewhere in there. And um, there was this chanting. I had no idea what it was. And then when I was a student in Europe, I saw devotees on the streets. I said, oh, wow, that's right out of the musical. <laughs> and visited the temple in, in London. It was a quite, quite a beautiful little place. And there was, this chanting was going on all the time, all the time, either in a recording or um, group gatherings. And um, so that was 44 years ago. And I've kind of been chanting all along, chanting ever since then. Uh, it's a very powerful form of meditation. Well, welcome back to uh, Sunset Gita. We, this is... We're starting our eighth year today, eight years of this, and you're still coming, and I keep asking myself why. We started in, nine, in uh, 2000, yeah, 2000, and what was that? Whatever it was, it was eight years ago. Five. 2005, thank you. The math, the math gets harder. 2006, that's right. That's right, it was the year the George Harrison book came out, 2006. And uh, we've been doing one verse a week, approximately. There are 700 verses in the Bhagavad Gita. So we're only on chapter 5, so that'll explain why. It takes a while. But we do these detours, don't we? We end up talking about pretty much whatever we want to talk about. That's our prerogative. So I thought what I would do today, just to kind of get the year started, is a... um, a general synopsis of things. Um, just to give us a kind of a philosophical background to the Bhagavad Gita, which we don't always do, because what happens is people show up, and we just kind of like roll right into whatever happened the week before, and we're back in that very conversational groove. And it's a lovely thing. Um, just to give you an idea, these... Cl- Talks are recorded, and according to Michael, at least our uh, podcast audience is where. In the top twenty on iTunes for Hinduism. Really? Wow. So whatever that is, I don't know how many. There's a lot of podcasts out there. Yeah. For Hinduism, we're pretty hot. And then apparently um, we're listening to Germany and South Africa. There was a Jivamukti teacher that came like 
Yeah. It's great. People come through from all over the world. I listen to you all the time. You know, it's fantastic. <laughs> or, you know, I like your classes, you know. We get them in Ireland. I really like your classes, you know. It's good discussion. It's really international. Um, but what we don't get to do is a more formal approach to the study of the Gita. So I thought maybe that would be a good way to start with... Where does this come from? Where does this yoga philosophy come from? Where does the spiritual vision that India has projected for so many thousands of years originate? What some people might call the Hindu creation myth, which is one way of describing it. Another way of describing it might be a deeper perception of reality. Um, so you'll have to forgive me because this got put together on kind of short notice, but uh, I think you'll find it interesting. Okay, so here we go. Unless someone has some announcements they'd like to make. Everybody doing good? Has the year ended well for you? Yes? We're, 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 we've embraced 2014 and we're, we've got our focus. We have our direction. We know what's moving us. We know what our goals are and we're full steam ahead. Wonderful, wonderful, okay. Okay, so a brief history of everything according to the vision of the Bhagavad Gita. The first realization in spiritual life, whether it's from the bhakti tradition or any authentic wisdom culture, the first realization is that there's something more going on out there. (laughs) It's not just what we can perceive. It's not just what we can define. You know, we're kind of obsessed with defining things as though giving it a name means that we've really understood it. Um, but the, the, the traditional cultures say, breathe into it, allow yourself to go past the first generation of thinking. Allow yourself to sink deeper into the mystery of things. And what you'll find is quite surprising. So the first realization is that we are a part of this, um, this is now the prehistory part of the talk, we're part of this greater creation, that there's something beyond the manifest universe, there's something more than what our senses can perceive, what our eyes can see, what our ears can hear, what our intellect can fathom. There's something more going on, something grander, something more majestic, Well, the Sanskrit texts suggest that that something more is a universe that lies outside and before the cosmic manifestation that we can perceive. And there's a verse in Bhagavad Gita for each of these images and each of these points. So the one, for example, here would be parastasmat tu bhava anyo vyakto vyaktat sanatana. Krishna is describing for Arjuna parastasmat. Tasmat means, however, paras tasmat, tu bhava anya, anya, there is another dimension, anya means another, or another thing, something else. And what is that something else? Paras tasmat, there's something higher. Higher than what? Vyakto vyaktatsanata, this world which is constantly coming into being and then annihilated and then coming into being again and annihilated. There's something beyond the temporal universe. 
And what is that? Parastasmatu bhava anyo vyakto vyatak sanatana. Krishna describes that there is a spiritual world. That the material universe that we inhabit, according to the Vedic calculation, is only about one quarter of the entire realm of creation. That three quarters are spiritual sky. The Sanskrit is paravyoma. Paravyoma, where the nature is para, superior, by dint of it being unchanging. Unchanging doesn't mean dull. (laughs) Unchanging doesn't mean always the same. It means always new. (laughs) Eternity is not a boring thing. I remember people when I first became a Krishna devotee, they they were very worried for my mental health, first of all. And and then they were worried about whether I was going to get bored. They really were. They say, you know, he's just singing the same thing over and over. Isn't that getting bored? You know, is that wearing thin for you? Without understanding that something that springs from that deeper mystery gets richer and richer and richer and richer. It never loses its dynamism. Right? That, that, that spiritual nature is a dynamic. The soul, the self within the body is dynamic. It's a marvelous energetic force that can take us in all kinds of wonderful places. So three quarters of creation, according to the Sanskrit calculation, are that eternal, uh, eternal realm. So what is our nature as products of that transcendent realm? Well, the Bhagavad Gita and the other Sanskrit texts say that consciousness has form. It has qualities. What are those qualities? Well, the three basic qualities of the soul are sat, chit, ananda. Sat means eternal. Chit means fully self-aware, fully cognizant. Ananda means blissful, joyful by nature. And there's a fourth term that's often left off, vigraha. The actual phrase in the Sanskrit text is sat ananda vigraha. Vigraha means endowed with shape. Spirit has shape. It's not a nondescript energy. It's not an amorphous, unmanifest oneness to things. Spirit has form. It is personal. Once you've gotten that one idea... You've understood everything of bhakti tradition and everything of Bhagavad Gita. And also things start to make sense. Once you realize that you're a person, not just now in this physically, materially embodied state, but a person always, even in the eternal transcendent realm, things begin to make sense. We'll come back to that in a minute. And by the way, at any point if you have a question or if something's not clear, I hope it'll just speak up. Right, because otherwise it's just me prattling on here. Nick, what's the form? Ah, what is the form of the self? What is the form of the soul? That you don't know. That we don't know. <laughs> that we don't know because we're not aware of our spiritual eternal self. That eternal form uh, is revealed when you have prepared yourself through rigorous contemplative practice, rigorous yoga and meditation, study the text, purification of life habits, 
when your consciousness becomes so freed from the contaminants, the contaminations that cloud our vision currently, that form will be revealed to you. It could be one of many, many different forms. There's no just one thing. The eternal spiritual realm, that Paravyoma realm, is also infinitely varied. Look at the world around you and see the variety just on this one little planet. This is a teeny tiny little, the, the, the metaphor given in the, in, the, in the Bengali text is a grain of mustard seed in an entire sack of mustard seeds. One seed in a huge sack of seeds. And on this one little insignificant planet, there's such variety. Every place in nature, I mean, how many millions of forms of flowers. I remember Prabhupada, my teacher, one time taking a rose from the vase on his desk, twirling it around, smelling it, and saying, how did this flower know to take that particular scent from the earth? The, the miracles around us are infinite. So what form you have in eternity, you don't know right now. That will be revealed in due course of time when we are prepared for it. Right now, even if I said to you, you have this particular form in the spiritual world, it really wouldn't do us much good. It, it, it wouldn't give us the kind of impetus to do better that we need right now. That revelation of our uh, eternal form comes at a much more sophisticated level of spiritual practice. Right? Yeah. Um, for me at least, um, I think there's some correlation between uh, talking with one and then uh, in the Tao Te Ching when it says uh, the Tao Te Ching tells not the eternal Tao and the name of the name is not eternal. Mm-hmm. Um, the nameless is Yes. Very often references like the one you cite are there to remind us. And for example, in the Sanskrit text, it says that um, the self and the supreme being have no form. The sense of it is no material form. We See, one of the reasons why it's difficult for us to uh, kind of wrap our arms around the idea that we are eternal beings endowed with form, is that we have no experience of unlimited form. Our experience of form is form as we know it in this world, which is not only limited, it's temporary, it's vulnerable, it's, it's subject to all kinds of, 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 of wounds, disease, uh, impediments of all kinds. And the, the tendency is to think that if that's my material conditioning, then my, then my spiritual condition, my liberated state, must be something which is unfettered by form. It, it must, I must be unlimited in that eternal realm. That's a projection of our material condition into a spiritual realm that we don't understand. 
There is unlimited form, we just don't know what it's like. Would you say that because we've been habituated to um, express everything by creating partitions, that it's in its absence and suppose that um, money, water, yeah, that's an absolutely valid um, uh, poetic image of, enlight- of an enlightened state. Sure. It's not discussed because it's not a primary mode function, especially in today's society where pendulum is so much longer life and we've had an intense Yeah, because we have this love hate relationship with our body. Um, it's it's um, more common. It's more common to find people um, attracted by the idea of becoming formless. Uh, the Bhakti tradition says, separate in your mind, at least theoretically, hypothetically, the difference between the kind of um, uh, form of misery, you know, the kleshas that we experience as embodied beings, and the possibility of yourself in transcendence. So we'll come to that a little bit more deeply in a moment. So I'm going to come back to the PowerPoint. Um, in addition to sharing these qualities of the supreme being, of eternity, bliss, knowledge, and form, we also share a bit of the independence that characterizes the supreme, Uh, Krishna, if you will, which means simply the most beautiful, that supreme form in the eternal realm from which all other forms emanate, has autonomy, independence. You are also independent. You have freedom of choice. According to the text, because this is always one of those questions, if this world out there beyond birth and death, is so beautiful. Why would anyone want to come here? What, what, what possible impetus would we have for coming into the material world? And the Sanskrit text described... Well, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. Um, my teacher, I asked him this once, and he said, a rich person may eat opulent foods every day. Private kitchen personal chef, maybe one day that person goes to the chef and says, you know, today for a change, can you make me some chip rice? Now, chip rice is a poor person's meal. It's the inexpensive broken grains of rice that fall to the bottom of the sack and they cost less to buy. We like variety. We seek variety. It's our nature to always be searching for something new and inventive and creative and satisfying to do. Some souls in this transcendent realm, not all, there are nityasiddhas, that is to say, souls who never know embodied life, materially embodied life, eternally liberated souls, they never come into this world. They're called nityasiddhas. Some souls in this infinity of life in the eternal realm become curious to know what it's like not to live with God, but to live like God. At that moment, when that curiosity kicks in, there's reason for a material creation. In order to, if you will, act out those fantasies 
of what it's like to be the center of creation. You have to have some place to do that. So the material world comes into being. And here's an image of... This, this is... Uh, you kind of got to get past the specificity of the art here to grasp the concept that when souls seeking embodied life, material life, life separate from that eternal realm, act on that impulse. At that moment, the material world comes into being. And there's this very beautiful description in the Puranas of how the material world comes about. Krishna, whom you see in the eternal realm in the top part of this image, comes into the material energies uh, as Mahavishnu, this huge four-armed form, this gigantic form. And from the body of Mahavishnu emanate universes like small air bubbles, as though exhaling underwater. These, these small bubbles, each one a universe, emanates. Each of those tiny, tiny little bubbles then begins to expand and becomes um, a universe. Now inside each, you see each of these little bubbles that is growing and becoming a universe, Mahavishnu again incarnates as Garbodakshayi Vishnu. This is the Vishnu from whose navel Brahma, the first created being, takes his birth. There's a lotus flower that grows from the navel of, of Garbodakshayi Vishnu and from the whirl of that lotus the first created being, Brahma, appears. How does this all begin? It begins, give me just a couple of minutes. Every time these universes begin to expand, the first element is sound. And the sound, according to the Sanskrit references, is om. Om is the generative sound of creation. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Sanskrit equivalent of that word is the om, the pranav omkara, the bij or seed mantra that is the life-giving sound that triggers creation. And there's this rather fascinating description of how the elements spool out one after the other. First comes sound, which gives rise to space, the medium through which the sound can then travel. The space gives rise to air. Air fills that space the air then generates fire and fire, water, etc. And along with each of these elements comes the uh, accompanying sense, the sense of hearing, the sense of touch, the sense of taste, the sense of smell. So along with these elements, the working senses and the information gathering senses are also generated. And this moment of creation is this explosive, all of, the, all of these elements are compact uh, within sound and the explosion of these elements as they spool out at the moment of creation creates this um, growth of the universe and it's actually a multiverse there's not just one but an infinite again there's mustard seeds in the big bag of mustard seeds uh, so the Vedic description again is quite beautiful that from that navel of Garbhodakshayi Vishnu springs a lotus flower and Brahma is born from that lotus flower. Um, okay, someone might say this is lovely mythology. 
It's all really cool stories. Um, the word myth is interesting. It has different dimensions to it. Myth, when we usually use that word, means something, a, a lie, something invented. The, the more profound meaning of the word myth is a truth so vast that it elevates to another level of perception. It's myth in that sense of a truth that's so profound that it exceeds our normal experience. It lives on a higher level of reality, which not just in India, but many pre-modern peoples live by such myths, which is why researchers from Squibb and Novartis or wherever climbed the mountains of Machu Picchu to learn what the native peoples there have known about herbs and plants for thousands of years. So in a sense, we're rediscovering by going into traditional wisdom culture truths that science is now beginning to approach. There's really nothing new under the sun. I have this discussion with my brother all the time. <laughs> kind of rolls his eyes every time I say, oh yeah, that's in the Vedas. <laughs> so, again, going back to this beautiful story of how wisdom came into the world, Brahma, by dint of his diligent self-searching uh, manifests knowledge from within his heart, which is where the knowledge comes from. Spiritual awareness, knowing yourself as an eternal being, is not something you learn from a book. Books can point you in the right direction. Ultimately, that experience of yourself as an eternal being happens through diligent practice, and it is a reawakening of something that's already there. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. So your yoga and your chanting reawakens an awareness of yourself as an eternal being that has always been there. We've forgotten it because we've been going through that samsara cycle, that cycle of birth and death for so long, and we forgot who we are. So Brahma, having now been um, blessed with this knowledge, Veda, the word Veda means knowledge, generations began to flow and Brahma taught the Vedic wisdom to one of his sons, Narada. And Narada taught it to his disciple Vyasa. According to the tradition, approximately 5,000 years ago, Vyasa codified this oral knowledge in written form. So the Vedic texts that we have, including Bhagavad Gita, were originally spoken. It was an oral tradition. And about 5,000 years ago, again, according to tradition, this oral wisdom was codified, written down by Vyasa in the form of the original Vedas. There were four, Chaturvedi, four divisions of the original texts, which he then expanded into uh, commentaries, supplementary texts, histories, histories not only of this creation but of other creations as well. And of course, all of this was 
way before Facebook. And so you heard it and learned it by oral reception. You didn't Google this stuff. You would sit at the feet of the teacher and you would listen. The teacher would speak. And in those days, according to the Vedic references, intelligence was so profound, people were so undistracted by social media, that by hearing it, they were able to retain this very, very deep wisdom. And then you have this chain of teachers taking these ancient texts, which includes the Bhagavad Gita, which is found in a larger work called Mahabharata, and you have the parampara disciplic line. So the first guru is God himself, Krishna before the dawn of time. The Vedic wisdom was imparted to Brahma at the moment of creation, from Brahma to Narada, from Narada to Vyas, and down through the generations, down through cosmic time, until the texts arrived today. And there are many such lineages. There isn't just one lineage. So the wisdom comes down through different traditions. The qualification for being a part of the parampara succession, succession. parampara you can understand as meaning the lineage, the college of teachers. A teacher teaches a disciple. The disciple then becomes a teacher. Teaches a disciple. And down through the generations it comes. The qualification for becoming a link in this tradition is described in the Upanishads. Shrotriyam Brahmanishtam. Shrotriyam means that you've heard from an authentic source that your knowledge is not invented, it's not something that's been recently concocted, it's coming down through this lineage. So what you have learned has, if you will, provenance. It has gravitas, it has weight, it has withstood the test of time. Brahmanishtam means that you are walking your talk. <laughs> it's not an academic exercise. I teach out at Hofstra. I don't know where some of these people got their degrees to teach out there. I really don't. You know, their, their lifestyles are rather unpleasant. You know, they're not the best examples for their students. I'm not mentioning names, mind you, but my point is that there's a difference between academic learning and spiritual learning. Academic learning, you earn your PhD, you qualify for a job, you get the job and you teach. Spiritual learning, your life has to be an embodiment of those wisdom teachings. You have to be a walking place of pilgrimage to qualify as a guru, as a, as a true guru, one who is representing this lineage. It's a very, very serious responsibility. I sit here, and I know the, bo the jokes are really bad. I know that. But I have a responsibility sitting here to represent this parampara succession so that what I explain for you does not deviate <coughs> from the intention and the original purpose of those ancient teachings. Okay, so where are we now? 
That's the first half. Any questions on that part? I'll give you the second half, and then we're just going to rip it apart and open it up for discussion. Yes? I have a question about ohms. Could you say that ohm is the sound that spawns creation? Yes. Well, I'm not familiar with the chakras you're referring to. Can you explain them for me? Um, the third eye. No, Yeah. Oh. The different the shashuma and the nine and the gala. The different chakras go up. The six chakras, the third eye chakra, and the seventh chakra is the country. And the uh, Om mantra, the bija mantra, represents the third eye and that... Brahmarandra. Okay. The, the 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 relationship that I can that I that comes to mind is that. Well, this 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 particular point at the top of the head, the Brahmarandra, right, which is where the three parts of the skull come together. That's the exit point of the soul in mystic yoga. When, when you, the, 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 the real mystic yogis who stimulate that fire, kundalini. the kundalini energy, when they leave their body, it's at will, first of all, they choose the moment to leave the body. And they do so by projecting the soul out of the body through that tiny hole. When, like when you, a, a child is very young and if you push at the top of the head, those three parts of the skull haven't joined yet, so it's very soft there. That point is the point of exit, according to the mystic yoga practice, for the soul to then transport to whatever that destination is that the yogi has envisioned. So, Om as the generating point of consciousness it is then, if you will, the start of a new life, the start of that next life. But I don't have this on perfect authority. It's not my particular field of expertise. Hold your thoughts just for a moment. We'll go through a few more of these slides. Okay. Um, the thing with the old thing is basically because the third eye is the power of it and the only is the awareness of it. You need absolute awareness and power in order to manifest the other chakras. So it's kind of a downward, down process. And then once you're on Earth, you draw those energy and you do the reverse to get back. So that's kind of how it's set up. Anyway, I don't know the real answer to your question. You know, I can guess, but I don't have an authorized answer to give you. I can look it up maybe, but I don't know. Are there other questions? Maybe one that I do know. Okay. Here's the second half of this presentation. Sure. Five elements that you said were in this ceremony. I mean, mm. five items that were on. There's a correspondence there, yes. They're called yeah. Mahabhuta in the Bhagavad Gita. And the relationship of this ceremony to that is. Very good, yes. <laughs> that we are taking the elements, both gross and subtle. Creation takes place from subtle to gross. So the most subtle is sound, which is why mantras are so powerful. 
Why is a mantra so powerful? Because it's a spiritual sound that goes directly to consciousness. It stimulates consciousness. Now, not any sound will do that, which is why if you're going to chant a mantra, it needs to come from this parampara source. It should be something that has its roots in the antiquity of the tradition. So the creation unfolds from the most subtle sound to the grossest earth. And you have all of those elements represented. The five principal elements of creation. Earth, water, air, sky, and fire. Those five are represented here. The conch shell is sound. Therefore, that's represented. Flowers, the smell of the earth, water, the candles. So those elements are being offered back to the generating source of those elements. It's an expression of thanks. Uh, in India, when you worship the Ganges River, you worship the Ganges by going into the river waist deep, scooping up a handful of water and pouring it back into the Ganges. Because the Ganges is so perfect and wonderful, what can you offer Mother Ganges? Only some of her own water. <coughs> So the same is true in the Arti ceremony that we're offering back to the source of creation, back to Krishna, the elements of, of creation. Yeah. Okay, so occasionally these pristine, beautiful teachings get lost. They're lost over the course of time. How do these teachings get lost? Well, sometimes they get lost simply because People don't understand them. So they change through misunderstanding. Sometimes the teachings are lost because people don't have much interest in them and they just kind of fade away. Sometimes wisdom disappears from the world because of neglect. Uh, if you don't work at it, it can dissipate. And sometimes, perhaps the most... Uh, egregious is when they're intentionally misinterpreted when someone appropriates wisdom teachings for their own ego ego grounded purpose and we've known a lot of people over the course of time who've done that you know, so called teachers who present their own version of things as a means of uh, enhancing their own prestige or their own careers. There are somewhere on the order of 500 or 600 different editions of the Bhagavad Gita. Most of those editions have been written by people who really don't have devotion for Krishna. They're appropriating Krishna's teachings in order to present their own ideas about those teachings because if you have your own book, then, well, then you get on, you know, talk shows get invited to lecture and so on. So. About 2,500 years ago, one of those kinds of misappropriation of the teachings took place. And it was a particularly uh, tragic time when people following the Vedic teachings 
appropriated those verses, this is, if you will, selective reading of texts, that talk about animal sacrifice as a pretext for opening slaughterhouses and eating meat. The Vedas do talk about the ability of certain qualified Brahmins, qualified spiritualists, to demonstrate the power of mantra by taking an old animal, a goat or sometimes a cow, and usually a goat, however, and offering that animal into a sacrificial fire not to eat the dead flesh, but to show how the mantra can generate life. The animal would leave the sacrificial pit youthful. Now, Prabhupada talked about having seen this himself. He used to go with his father to the Kumbha Mela and other melas or, or festivals that take place in India. And he said, at these melas, you, you, there are yogis there, six, seven hundred, eight hundred years old. They look like young men in their thirties or forties. And what they do is they go into the river and they come out with a rejuvenated body. If you know the right process for mastering the circulation of airs within the body, the proper recitation of mantra, and if you're living your life in a yogic way, you can regenerate the energies in your body in such a way that you actually lose age. <laughs> you appear much younger than you actually are. It was a, a convenient pretext for people to um, slaughter animals, saying a mantra, kill the animal, sell the meat. And so at that time... Buddha appeared and taught Ahimsa. What Buddha said was, set aside these Vedic texts. You don't need these texts. Forget about offering sacrifices to any supreme divinity. Just lead a life of nonviolence. That was Buddha's mission, was to promulgate Ahimsa, or nonviolence. He didn't talk about eternal beings or eternal souls. That his purpose was different. His purpose was to get people to stop thinking about sacrifices to demigods and supreme beings because they were misusing the text. So he achieved that more peaceful culture, but at the cost of the legitimacy of the teachings, at the cost of denigrating the Vedic texts. What he taught was four noble truths. Suffering exists. Suffering is caused by cravings, by our own desires. If you give up the cravings, you achieve freedom from the suffering. And the way to that freedom is by following the eightfold path of righteous living. Right viewing, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And what is the result if you lead such a life? Nirvana. nirvana. Buddha, Buddha nirvana is a breaking down of consciousness. Because he could not relate his teachings to the Vedas, which talk about the eternality of the self, 
Buddha described a condition whereby consciousness ceases. He didn't talk about where does it go. He talked about you practice your yoga, your ego breaks down, and when you achieve perfection, you disappear. Now, that cessation of consciousness is not the goal of all Buddhist teachings. But at this time, it was a very radical form of Buddhism. And in order to counter that radical form of Buddhism, which talked about the destruction of consciousness, Shankara taught what is known as the Mayavada interpretation of this Parampara teaching. And again, we're talking about what is the history. The purpose of this presentation is to give you a sense of where did the wisdom come from, what was its purpose, what have some of the changes been over the course of cosmic history. So the teachings came down. Sometimes they're lost. Sometimes they're misinterpreted. 2,500 years ago, a more recent, if you will, change was this distortion of the teachings. Buddha appears to set them right by decrying the authority of the Vedas. Shankara says, you can keep this idea of becoming one with everything, the loss of self. But you don't have to reject the Vedas. Shankara's purpose was to reestablish the authority of the Vedic texts. So what he said was, oh, you'll find that in the Vedas. You'll find that ahimsa idea in the Vedas. You'll find the idea of the self being different from this world in the Vedas. But he put a different, he put a certain spin on it. What he said was not that the self dissolves into nothingness. What he said was, the self becomes one with everything. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. I am not this body. I'm not of this world. What am I? I'm everything. (laughs) The Shankara teachings, the Mayavada teachings are that when you achieve perfect realization, you become Krishna. You become everything. Well, that had value in its moment because he reestablished the authority of the Vedas Here's a, a copy of a, uh, an edition of Shankara's commentary, for example, on the Bhagavad Gita. Now, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita in front of you, what do you see on the cover? Chariot. You see a chariot. What else do you see? Horses. see horses. What else do you see? Krishna. See Krishna. What else do you see? Arjuna. See Arjuna. What are we looking at? We're looking at variety. We're looking at the self and transcendence. We're seeing that the, the eternal realm has some specificity to it. Now look at the cover of this commentary by Shankara. What do we see there? You see nothing. (laughs) see a light. The publisher has kind of given the shop away, so to speak, by the design of the cover of Shankara's commentary on the Gita, because here you don't see people. You don't see chariots. You don't see things going on. It's a oneness. It's a light. And that was Shankara's philosophy. It's also called a Dvaita Vedanta. That when you achieve the fulfillment of your spiritual realization, you become one with, um, with everything. Which is why, 
you may wonder why yoga studios have so many posters of so many divinities, right? Yeah, because basically it doesn't matter which one you worship. Take your pick. They're all the same. They're all temporary. And when you achieve perfection, you become all of those deities. The Sanskrit phrase is yatamat patapat. One truth, many paths. Doesn't matter what you do. Do bhakti, do karma, do jnana, do hatha. Whatever you do, it all takes you to that same one place of we all become one. Google it. Google yatamat patapat. There's more than five million entries. Very, very popular idea. Right? The goal of your yoga is you become the divinity. So it doesn't. Who do you like? You like Lakshmi? No problem. Worship Lakshmi. You like Krishna? No problem. Worship Krishna. Because they're all the same and ultimately they're all one. So the mystic yogis look for that liberation from the body. But if you go to the yoga text, you'll find that devotion to the divinity, bhakti, has its roots in all yoga practice. It's not something that's alien. It's there in all yoga practice. Go back a little bit. You talked about the Shankara. Shankara, Shankara. interpretation is yeah. we're all one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're saying that that's a that was a misinterpretation, or it was it was it was a cunning interpretation. What Shankara did was to take certain key verses that supported his thesis and parsed them, gave a spin that supported his idea so that people would move away from this radical Buddhist culture and come back to the Vedic culture and establish in the Vedas. And once they were back in that Vedic context, their subsequent teachers brought them closer closer, closer to the bhakti tradition. So that you've, you've got to get them back in the ballpark. Then you can start talking about devotion and Krishna and so on. Right? And when you showed your first picture of the ultimate Krishna, super, super Krishna, um, but is that all the things that come out below, aren't they sort of part of that bigger super, super Krishna, I guess? <laughs> that we're all, that we're all, the, all energies come from him, yes. No, Shankara's point would be that that super Krishna, that's you. That when you achieve fulfillment in your yoga practice, when you've completely freed yourself from all attachments, you no longer have anything to do with this world, you become that super Krishna. But that super Krishna that you're seeing as an image here, that's not the ultimate super Krishna. The ultimate super Krishna is a light. It's an effulgence. It's a nondescript energy that pervades everything. You become all pervasive. Your form disappears. Form is temporary. Form is material. Form is of this world. Form is not of the eternal realm. That's mayavada philosophy. Mayavada means, maya means that which is not. You are not form. You are not the body. What are you? Brahman. You're that eternal energy. And even Krishna, according to that distorted or or, or, uh, slanted perspective, ultimately doesn't have a body. When Krishna comes into the world, he assumes a body in order to spread teachings. 
But when he goes back to the eternal realm, he sheds his body and again becomes a nondescript light. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, that's crazy. Someone who thinks like that doesn't understand that my nature is such that I and my body are not different. Just as you and your eternal form are also not different. This form is temporary. This has to be shed. The ego that must be gotten rid of is the hurtful material ego that's been born of the elements of this world, that's born out of needs, out of fear, out of anxiety, out of insecurity, unworthiness, all of the limitations that we place on ourselves. That ego needs to be corrected. How do you do that? By going to the deeper self, the true ego. Now that true ego has... See, Shankara inadvertently actually gave a very convincing argument for the eternality of the self as an individual. What he said was that, well, it's a, it's, it's a long description, that, that Brahman energy cannot be changed. And in that way he differed from Vyasa's presentation in, in, the, in the Vedic text. If you're a person now, if you're an individual now, you must be so eternally. Because by nature spirit is indestructible, there cannot have been a time in cosmic history when this Brahman energy got cut up into little souls who then got distributed throughout the universes. And then those little souls that were cut off from Brahman meditate, realize their eternal identity, and then get crazy glued back onto the big Brahman again. It defeats the very definition of spirit as indestructible. If you're an individual now, you have been an individual eternally, and you will rest an individual eternally. But who is that individual? That we don't know. Your yoga practice is not to dissolve away into nothingness. Your yoga practice is to allow that person whom you are in transcendence to emerge. You have a personality. You may be funny. You may be poetic. Who knows what you are spiritually? We won't know that until you've chanted, calmed down, gotten rid of all the hurtful habits, and begun to live that yoga life. And gradually that will be revealed. So the concept of not I am God, but God is me. So mm -hmm. God filters down. Yes, that's correct. There's a difference between saying that God is everything, which is true, and everything is God, which is false. God is everything means that everything is of the energy of God, emanating from God. To say that everything is God is to contradict God's uniqueness and supremacy. And it's presumptuous and egotistical to say that I am God. I didn't create the universe, did you? Yeah. Earlier we said that um, that presumption is what separates us and we don't dwell with God, but we dwell like God. Yeah. Kind of like a jealousy or envy mm -hmm. that pulls us into material realm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What we're here to learn in through yoga, through Bhagavad Gita, ultimately is humility. 
It's humility. It's a willingness to at last admit, <laughs> after millions of lifetimes, I'm not God. I am not God. It's not all about me. <laughs> Get over yourself. That's basically the message of the Bhagavad Gita. Get over yourself. You know, it's not all about you. <laughs> yeah. Because from the beginning, that's what we learned from earliest childhood. Earliest childhood. We come out, everything is big and scary. You know, so you learn to defend yourself and you know, then you're browbeaten by the culture, you know, into this is what success is. This is what you know, all of those layers are artificial impositions on this pure, beautiful being whom you are. You go back to that, and it's an extraordinary, dynamic, ecstatic relationship between souls and God. <laughs> you, know, you read the descriptions of the realized great devotees. What's it like? Leela knows. You read the Chaitanya Charitamrita. They're rolling on the ground in ecstasy. You know, their life is one of unlimited bliss and, and happiness. It's the thing that we're looking for. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, it's what we're looking for. But because we have forgotten that original self, we're looking for it in things that we can perceive and touch and experience in the world. You know what? I'm going to stop here. There are a few more slides, but I'm going to stop here. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is that I'm tired of hearing myself talk. And the other is that I wanted in this first session of the new year to um, put a proposal out there to you guys. Most of you, as I look around the room, are what we might call regulars. The others among you are Irregulars. Um, this is this is your class session discussion. Your group here, and we have all kinds of options in the year ahead. And because I'm not going to be teaching at Hofstra this year, I'm going to be putting more time into this. And I would love to know what it is that you would like to do. Let me give you some examples of what you can choose from, from column A or column B. We used to have potluck dinners. And when we did that, we had you know, big crowds of people come, and usually we'd have some bhangra dancing, and, you know, or some you know, MC yogi would come, or somebody would come, and you know, we'd just have some fun. When we were the host, that was a regular kind of bed. Like, yeah, everybody comes in. You know, people would, you know, it's a potluck. You, you know, we bring things in and bring friends and there was a lot of dancing and, you know, it was just a lot of fun. That's one thing we could do. Um, we are having guest speakers. And by the way, one guest speaker coming up later in the month is my mother. <laughs> She's agreed. <laughs> She's agreed to come and be interviewed here to talk about uh, life experience. She is the most spiritual non-devotee I know. <laughs> <laughs> She's 88, and I will tell you quite candidly, a lot of the stuff that you get from me, I get from my mom. So 
she'll be here. We'll get to talk with her, and she's, she's pretty cool. Um, and Radhanath Swami will be coming back, and we'll have, we have other guest speakers lined up. So we'll be doing that. We could do special events. For example, in the past we've done, was it a four-part or five-part part special on the Ramayana? We did. I think it was like six. Six? Of six we had theater, we had music, we had PowerPoint, storytelling, dance. We had a whole, he was like, you know, because the Ramayana is this rich culture. It's not just a story. It's music and dance and, and singing and poetry and painting and, you know, it's like theater, everything. So we could do a Ramayana series, right? Um, we could do a Mahabharata screening, you know, of the Peter Brook film that was uh, first produced at BAM back in 1986. And it's, uh, it's an amazing. L- learning the story of Mahabharata is actually very important for mastering the teachings of Bhagavad Gita. Because when you know the backstory, you have the context within which this dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna took place. So that's very... Peter Brook is um, one of our foremost directors, theatrical directors. Has done some landmark work. And this was one of his very memorable productions. It lasted something like nine hours. Nine hours, and it was uh, one performance was in one day, and I remember we knew about our picnic baskets. You know, we were having lunch with the whole nine hours. It's amazing. So we could do that. We could we could have a cooking class in case you want to learn about how to make prashadam, you know, food that is then sanctified on the altar. We could whatever you want to do. We could have kirtan classes. So. I'm opening this up and I'm asking for suggestions. Okay, so we don't, you don't have to tell me now, but maybe next week you'll think about it, come to class. We could have more formal sessions on the Bhagavad Gita if you want. We could be doing vocabulary. You know, I could quiz you. Michael and I do this about once a month, or should be doing it once a month, where I'll give him a question to answer and he has to write an essay. Now those of you who might be considering initiation into bhakti, you have to know the philosophy and there are certain questions that you need to be able to to answer. So if you were interested in learning more about initiation, let me know. And we'll, you know, we could institute that as a practice. So whatever it is you'd like to do, we could we could take a field trip. We could go to a museum. Now I know that some of you have any of you been to the yoga exhibit at the uh, Smithsonian in Washington? Nick, you've gone, right? Yeah, Nick's gone. You brought me the book, didn't you? Yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's, we might consider, it's over at the end of this month, but we might consider, you know, just kind of hopping on a train and going down to Washington. It's a day trip, you know? Would you like to do that, like that idea? Okay. All right, well, that, let's put that on the list. All right? Um, oh. What's that? No, well, no, that way I think we'd have to do that on a, on a weekend. Everything else is Tuesday. Yeah, now this is our slot. Even though, I'll tell you off the record, no one should do, um, uh, Ganesh Das offered me a second slot during the week, which would be during, during the day. So I, I'm not sure, but it would be like 11 to 12, I think. Um, 
but uh, that's, that hasn't gone very far yet. So let's think in terms of, this is our time, Tuesday evenings, right? Um, one thing I would like to do, and would you, would you help me out with this? Um, would you hand one of these cards out to everybody? Um, this is, um, anyone, anyone, thank you. Um, at the end of June, there's a two-day weekend workshop with Radhanath Swami and a few other people. Um, it's for those who are interested in really deepening their bhakti practice. Uh, it's limited enrollment, so, and we already have, we're about 25 or 30 percent subscribed already. We're limiting this to four groups of 12 people. That's all. Four groups of 12 people. The reason is that we want you to have an intimate, personal time with these wonderful teachers. Radhanath Swami, I mean, how many, how often do you get to spend private time with Radhanath Swami in a group of 12 people? It doesn't, doesn't happen. Divya will be teaching Ayurvedic cooking. Charu Chandra, Yogi Charu, will be describing the connection between asana and bhakti. He'll be leading the yoga classes. So those, those two days and all those people will be there? Uh-huh. They'll all be there both days. Uh, Gauravani is coming with his group and he'll be teaching about the, the, the heart of kirtan, which is love and devotion. Right? It's not... Uh, Rukmini? May, is she coming? I don't know. Did you talk with her about it? No, I haven't. I was, sometimes she comes with her. She may. Uh, some of the people who have signed up are heads of yoga studios. Uh, so we, we know that they're going to be bringing some students. So th- this is really meant for that group of people who want to deepen their bhakti practice, right? Um, there's a discount between now and when? February? Something like that. Oh, by the way, the meals are to die for. Um, Divya is, I mean, there's a menu here. I, I'm sorry to sound like I'm, you know, pushing this, but um, people think vegetarianism is dull. You know, I mean, wait till you taste what Divya does. It's extraordinary. You have a list on the website. You can see a list of everything that's going to be served. Yeah, there is a website. It's retreat.strmedia. Um, if money's a problem, you let me know. Uh, my service and that of other organizers is being donated for free. All that we're doing is using the tuitions to pay for the expenses. It's at Old Westbury Gardens, which is just the most beautiful place in the New York area, 30 minutes from Penn Station. It's a half hour away, so that there, you don't have to worry about hotel costs. You can come back home in the evening and then just come out the next morning, right? It's a you know, $12 train ride. Um, People will be carpooling. Uh, there are some VIP guests who will remain nameless for the moment. So uh, if you're interested in that, please, please let me know or let Nick know. Nick is very graciously uh, offered to organize the sign-ups. And so you can talk with him about whatever you want to know about. How many people do you have? Yeah, we, there's, a, there's a staff of about 15 people to care for 48 guests. I mean, just to give you an idea, this is intended to be memorable. This isn't not, hey, let's, you know, go rave for a couple of days and then bye-bye. This is meant to cultivate long-term friendships in the bhakti community. 
and to really give people an experience, the, an aesthetic experience. The world of Krishna is the world of aesthetics. It's beautiful. The eternal realm, the descriptions in the text are breathtaking. We wanted to make it as close to that as we possibly could. So we chose Old Westbury Gardens, which is this landmark property with flowered gardens and fountains and swans. And we have our own house there. It's called Orchard Hill uh, with breakout rooms. So, you know, there's private sessions. So anyway, it should be pretty nice. Right? Um, do come next week with your ideas for what we can do this year. Okay, I'm really interested to know what you'd like to do. Right. Okay. Any questions? Uh, where, uh, where is the uh, banana nut loaf? It's up there? Okay. Could we have a couple of volunteers to pass out the treats? You know, we need... A Tuesday would not be complete without a treat. So thank you. Thank you very much. And um, introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. That's a lovely part of our Tuesdays as well, as you get to make friends. Uh, and thank you all very much. It's wonderful to be back. Did you have yeah, something you wanted to say? Oh. Oh, fantastic. Great. Share, as always, is the cerebral cortex of our Tuesday gatherings. Thank you very, very much. Okay. So thank you for coming, and I hope to see you all next week. Thank you.